Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Paul, I'm going to let you bring in our esteemed guest who can't talk about a $60 billion merger. But but I just want to say, I mean, I know it's all about scale and we can talk about scale, but the key thing for me is I need to own my look. <laughs> I got to own your look. And the Botox thing, I mean, it's getting, you know, my, my Botox is like Allegan's stock chart. <laughs> Not so good. So I'm own your look. Th- this is... The Botox people. The Botox folks. I mean, Abby V, $63 billion deal. Abbott Lab. Come on, it's Abbott Labs. <laughs> Abbott they, Labs. They, can that's you right. imagine the fee that the consultant got to come exactly. up with Abby V? Yep, buying Botox maker. <laughs> can, can we turn on Tobias's <laughs> microphone? I mean, great, thank you. Okay, no, the V stands for life. That's the reason. It's French oh, for really? the word life. Yes. Oh, it's French. That's and, where the consultants So, in. like, when the Canadians go to Chicago and play the Blackhawks, everybody from Abbey V shows up? Well, no, not necessarily. I don't think they're based in Montreal. Paul, start on this. We can't talk to Tobias about individual stocks, but we can talk, Paul, about this disease of scale. That's Permian. right. Go. Tobias Lefkovich, City Investment Research Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. He's been there forever from the Smith-Barney days, right? Correct. Going way back. So, Tobias, what do you make of this deal? And, we, you know, we're seeing some, uh, you know, it's actually a pretty good M&A year. We're seeing some big ticket items, not as many deals as we've seen in the past. We actually had Mark Schaefer, co-head of uh, M&A for City on several weeks ago and said, we're getting some big ticket M&A trades, not, ne- not necessarily as many deals as we've seen in the past. But here in the healthcare space, another round of consolidation. Look, two, two things I think are impacting it. One is the fears of what might come out of the legislative channel down the road in terms of pressure on the healthcare industry, costs of healthcare provisions, Medicare, Medicaid are huge chunks of the government budget. And, and it's going to get worse because of the aging of the baby boomers. So unit volume growth is going to pick up in terms of the need for healthcare services. But the second thing is, and I, I had to go look this up because I couldn't remember it off the top of my head, the Herfindel Hirschman Index, the idea <laughs> of right. concentration, ah, um, you like that, yeah. right, um, tends to generate um, this idea of better margins and things like that. As you get concentrated industries, you tend, there aren't as many competitors to go to, and it gives you some element of pricing power, even in an environment where there's likely yeah. to be downward Let pressure. Let me translate the fancy multiple syllables of the French one there. <laughs> what it means, Paul, is everybody wants to be like the cell phone business. You know, we're, we're coming down to where it's two and three. Catherine Mann at Citigroup has led worldwide on this monopsonistic tendency yep. of concentration. It's interesting. One of the other things we've noticed, we've had some guests over the last several weeks talking about, you know, slower growth, you better get used to it globally going forward. And one of the ways you try to counteract that in certain sectors is by M&A, growth by acquisition. Is that something that you subscribe to? Especially given very cheap funding costs. Right. There you right. Go. Credit spreads are really tight. Companies can go out and borrow pretty aggressively. And if the market isn't willing to pay for equities, then companies will buy those equities. And again, right. they, they've been doing a lot of buying their own stock, but they have a lot of cash. There's still about $4 trillion of cash in corporate America to can, to kind of go out and do things with. Can I interrupt this program? <laughs> sure. Why program. on the Allergan website is everybody using Botox look like a 32-year-old supermodel, <laughs> male and female? What 
this? I mean, they they all look like they're going to get carded at a bar tonight. Yeah, but remember, they're using some Botox. Tom, remember, some people use Botox <laughs> for migraines as well, not just for looking better. Is I didn't right? know I that. Did really, know that. I did not know that. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I mean, am I leaking right now? <laughs> <laughs> so, Tobias, what are some of the? I mean, when you think about you know what we're seeing in the market today, one this is a G twenty week. Um, it, to what extent do you think investors really should be focusing on? This global trade issue, it seems to really have an outsized impact on the market. It's significant. Look, the old, G, you know, the old WTO or GATT program of global trade um, is being disrupted. And what I think happened in May to a great degree was people thought a deal between the U.S. and China was kind of on the brink of getting done at the end of April. And now they pushed it out to some future date, you know, whatever that is, September, December. Um, I don't think anybody really expects um, Xi and Trump to walk out, you know, all smiles, we have a deal and it's done. Um, and and at, in that sense, people are worried about what the implications of trade could be to global growth. You talked earlier about slowing of growth. And one of the issues behind that is this idea of um, beggar thy neighbor type of a process of exports taking away potentially jobs from local citizens around the world. So this populist, nativist, nationalist kind of mindset is not unique to the U.S. It's happening in Brazil and France yep. and in the U.K., etc., cetera, uh, in Italy. And there is a concern among governments generally about protecting their local populations from the potential threats of outsourced jobs. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm not convinced this is necessarily President Trump. Democrats and, and Republicans are aligned in terms of pushing right. back on China. If you're just joining us, Tobias Levkovich of Citigroup with us. He'll stay with us through the hour, and we'll have an expert on Allegan Abvi joining us uh, here in a bit. Tobias, within G20, within Osaka, within Xi and Trump, there's got to be an opportunity in the equity markets. What's your single best idea in terms of sectors right now? So, look, we think there are a couple. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the banks because I think they're— You're going to go to the banks. Because I think they're so Start beaten there. up. Yeah. Uh, if the Fed is cutting rates and you get a steepening of the yield curve— You sound like that, a Montreal and This killed you last year. I the know, banks I know. Call, the, value, right? the value trade hurts. Um, but but uh, just don't, don't take me down the Canadians' route. That's too painful. Um, but the—, the the other side of it is um, that I think is interesting is semiconductors, which have been heavily beaten up here uh, by the uh, you know the, the trends that we've been talking about in trade, and yet here's a group that's not investing aggressively in capex, which is usually a very good sign for the industry. Valuation criteria is actually pretty uh, attractive for the group. Earnings revisions have been cut so badly that they probably bounce from here, um, and that would be if you want to play my tech trade, that would be there. Um, you know, we've been bullish for a while on healthcare, so some of these uh, M&A transactions are helpful to our views there. Um, and again, I, I think there is some real value in value. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, I don't joke around this, you know, without thought that the people who haven't been killed in value want to kill themselves <laughs> at this stage because the it's been such a painful trade. And at some point, I do think there is the potential for change. It could be a weaker dollar that helps you there. Uh, in places like energy, commodities. It could be, um, again, cutting of rates and what that does to the shape of the yield curve, potentially helping the financials also. 
So in the healthcare space, that's a we, we don't hear it that often. I guess it's because of that regulatory overhang, the regulatory uncertainty. We're going into a 2020 election cycle, which generally raises a lot of healthcare <clears throat> discussion. How do you kind of put that into your framework of healthcare? So there are two elements of healthcare, right? There are two groups. There's a pharma and, 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 and biotech group, and then there's yeah. also the healthcare equipment and services group. So we weren't particularly bullish on healthcare equipment services. And then we had this Medicare for all, and you had this massive correction. In right, stocks. right, right. So then we stepped up and said, okay, we want to take advantage of some of that weakness. Some of it's fair, and some of it's probably overdone. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that we followed that as well. Tobias Lefkowitz with us. What we do at Bloomberg Surveillance is try to inform and go deeper. We've been making jokes about Botox. A, it's a huge business, and also it's a science. Paul Sweeney, we've got an individual uh, with serious biological chops working at Bloomberg Intelligence, and she is truly expert on Clostridium botulinum. Oh, boy. Which is, in one type, really dangerous, and other types makes me look 39 every day. Liz Krutahalo is that expert. Liz is a senior analyst, a healthcare analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in London. Uh, Liz, thanks so much for joining us here. Earlier today, Tom circulated a chart, a five-year chart, I think, of Allergan stock, and it was not a pretty chart. What is AbbVie buying here? Yeah, so the, it's definitely not a pretty site. This company has been built up through a number of acquisitions. It's a really almost interesting business case study, how they've come to where they are. And the horizon for long-term growth is not very impressive. So they've been looking for a solution for a while. Management has been under a ton of pressure from investors. So from the Allergan perspective, this is kind of the best-case scenario in our view. AbbVie is picking up a very diversified company. So we don't really see any synergies, but it certainly would expand the opportunity into the aesthetics market. So that's Botox, things like Latisse for eyelash lengthening, a number of different cosmetic products that you can think about. And then also things like ophthalmology and CNS and GI. So it's really a, a play to kind of plug what will be the gap that's left by AbbVie's lead asset, Humera. So if you know, you mentioned, you know, there's not a lot of synergies, yet I, I note a 45% premium here to the closing stock price um, given with this bid. So how's the valuation look here? It seems pretty rich for a company that prospects may be somewhat, you know, you know, problematic. It does. We're running the numbers right now, but right now off the top of the, the bat reading the press release, the AbbVie is claiming it's about 10% accretive to EPS, and that seems reasonable. They're looking at $2 billion in synergies by year three. That's going to be a bit of a stretch. I mean, that kind of is just going to be chopping R&D programs. So they're claiming that 50% of the overlap in R&D will contribute to that $2 billion in synergies. There are really no synergies. So that's just going to be saying, you know what, this program doesn't yeah. work. Scrap it. Are they a cosmetic company? Is Allergan really looking for the margins of the first floor at Bloomingdale's? <laughs> so they are, but I mean, it's the kind where you're going into your doctor and you build that relationship over time. And Allergan has done that. They've really built this business. I mean, you say Botox, people know it, right? Yeah. You know it by the brand. And they've they've built that over time. And you have competitors coming in. And, you know, we've right. done an analysis of this landscape. It is their market. They have definitely built that okay. up. Okay. Well, you mentioned Latisse. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I haven't gone there yet. I'm probably going <laughs> to use it 
to be this is a chemical off of glaucoma yes that what's it do it makes my eyelashes grow more it does, and it's a really interesting story. It was a side effect seen in glaucoma trials. Wow, these patients have longer eyelashes. You know what? Let's turn it into a product. I mean, and where, that is, that's how Allergan has worked. Where does it stand in terms of profit right now? I mean, does 90% drop to the bottom line? Yeah, so Botox is quite an interesting product. There is a very high premium on it, so the margins are pretty good for them now that they've gotten their business established. I mean, they have got these key prescribers that basically are just loyal to the brand, and it's it's just almost... Who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> <laughs> it's a cash pay business as well, right? So right now, the climate in pharma is all about drug price pressure, and you don't have that in a business like this. This is cash pay. Liz Grutahalo, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Liz is a senior healthcare analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, in our London office. Ambassador Hormat's had a lot to do with the economics of our State Department under Secretary Clinton. It was a mandate of Secretary Clinton to really fold economics into state and providing real leadership there was Heidi Krabo Redeker uh, with a Council on Foreign Relations on Economic Statecraft. Um, how is that economic statecraft going in 2019, Heidi? Uh, we, we've moved it forward to, I think, a more mercantilist Elizabethan the uh, first uh, economics. Uh, what would you expect to see out of a G20 meeting, out of a G Trump meeting, uh, given our new economic statecraft. Well, th- first of all, thanks for uh, for inviting me this morning. This is uh, this is not in- economic statecraft as previously envisioned, but I think you know what we would expect to see out of this G20, particularly with uh, with President Trump and and Xi Jinping, is really kind of more of a G two. Uh, agenda uh, on trade, and I think the best we could really look for is a, is a ceasefire. So you know we've we've seen periods of escalation. Uh, we we obviously have the pressure on with potential 300 billion in additional tariffs that uh, that Trump could move forward with. Uh, on the Chinese side, you know you really have an incentive to avoid those tariffs, and you've seen a more defiant mood in China uh, and some non-negotiables on the table challenging their economic model. I'm not sure they particularly trust Donald Trump. Um, they've seen what happened with the Mexican tariffs. So I think aiming at a pause uh, similar to the last G20 in Argentina would be um, probably the most likely outcome, although you never really know what to expect with President Trump. You never really know what to expect. So kicking the can down the road is my uh characterization of your analysis um is that let's assume that that happens take us to you know the next step between the u.s and china so the next step i think you know you really do have some issues on the table that china is not willing to to necessarily trade away they're not new issues um you know but they are important ones to the u.s they're very important ones to china and so i i would not rule out uh, several months down the road that you see President Trump moving ahead with those tariffs. Uh, it, I don't think that he necessarily believes that tariffs are hurting the U.S. right now, that they are uh, the, the tool of choice. 
Um, I think he watches the stock market pretty closely, so I, I would not be surprised to see that uh, to see that happen. Although that next list, you know, is filled with with goods that would hurt uh, consumers, manufacturers, retailers, stuff that you know everybody buys at uh, uh, at at their stores for for getting their kids ready for school in, in the fall. So it's really um, that next that next list is one that really could hit the U.S., I think, in a, in stronger than the last uh, last 250. And so, Heidi, just take us in the, into the mindset of, of the Chinese negotiators and, and the leadership. You know, what can realistically they do to push this agreement further? It sounds like they may need to take more of a leadership role in these negotiations. So, you know, the, the Chinese could actually try and they, they may decide that they, um, that they don't trust this president enough to do a deal with him and wait him out. There's obviously an important election in 2020. Um, so there is every possibility that if, uh, if China is in no mood to, to compromise on its core interests, um, and they are becoming more defiant, they do want to be a 5G superpower. <coughs> Um, they may decide it's worth waiting to see if they have to deal with Donald Trump after the next election. Heidi Kerbo Redeker with us with the Council on Foreign Relations. Of course, her expertise on uh, China, her work with Secretary Clinton years ago, uh, but also with uh, Senator John Kerry of another time and place. Heidi, I don't know. I'm, I'm going blind here. I don't know your experience with our economics in Iran, but it's certainly... Senator Kerry and Secretary of State Kerry was very much involved with trying to extricate Iran from another time uh, in place. What are your thoughts as you look at the last four and five days on Iran, and particularly with Ambassador Bolton speaking in Jerusalem just hours ago? So I am quite concerned about Iran. I think we all should be. The um, you, you see escalation rather than de-escalation. You have uh, the Secretary of State in the region. Uh, you referred to, to uh, John Bolton in the region as well. We've seen sanctions imposed, threat of sanctions, and we also have the June 27th um, day that, that Iran has said that it could breach the uranium stockpile limits um, that were agreed under the JCPOA. So you know that is one day before the G20. You have uh, you have an opportunity at the G20 with other leaders who are from China, Russia, Saudi, Europe, right. um, who are who all have concerns about this, um, particularly because of the relation to uh, to commodity flows through the Straits of Hormuz. Well, that's fine, but what do our European allies do? I mean, we understand some of the responses of China. What would you presume will be the European continent's response if we go after Persia for good? I mean, don't they just unilaterally come in and pick up the economic slack? So I think the way that the I think that that the way the sanctions have been uh, have been designed, uh, they you know they are really. Putting pressure on European companies not to not to step into the into the breach, um, and I think you know the offer of willing to sit down with the regime from the U.S. Uh, perspective is not you know is not being taken up by uh, by Ayatollah Khamenei. He does not want to sit down with the U.S. So I think the best case right now is if we were to see a lower level. 
um, sort of rehashing of what the old deal looked like um, because otherwise, you know, you, you're, you're going to see continued escalation. Um, and uh, I do think that at this point, President Trump wants to be the one to step in and do a better yeah. deal. Okay, wonderful. Heidi uh, Krabel-Redeker, thank you so much. Uh, with the Council on Foreign Relations on Iran and, of course, on China. Argolnar Montavalli has given us outstanding coverage from Tehran, little windows, little vignettes into the people of Iran, into the political moment in Iran. And she joins us now by telephone from uh, Tehran. Golnar, if I was to go 250 miles south of Tehran, there is the gorgeous city of Esfahan. How is all this playing away from Tehran? How is this tension between President Trump and the leadership playing in Esfahan, south of Tehran? Um, it's a good question. It's my, my mother's hometown. So you're asking the right, the right person, Tom. Um, I think um, given that um, Esfahan is itself, it's, uh, it's one of the largest metropolitan centers in Iran. I think it's the third largest city. Um, um, I would say it's, it's also a very middle class city. It's a, it's a more religious city than Tehran is. It's slightly more conservative, but I think yes. it would be very similar to the sentiment in Tehran because it's a, it's a, because it's a metropolitan hub and it's a huge manufacturing hub as well. Some of Iran's biggest steel and cement manufacturers, they're the biggest steel manufacturers in the Middle East, some of those companies. It's hugely important for right. the construction industry in the country. They are based in the outskirts of of Esfahan, football teams in that city are named after these companies. So lots of families there rely on these industries, and obviously, especially something like right. this industry, is going to feel a lot of pain from from these sanctions. Beautifully, beautifully described. If if that's true of economic sanctions, will personal sanctions against religious leaders affect Esfahan? Um. It's very difficult to, to say. I doubt, I doubt it very, very much. I doubt that the um, sanctions on the Supreme Leader will have a tangible impact on the economy. I think that's one reason why President Rouhani was mocking this decision quite um, severely this morning. He went as far as to say that the, the White House was suffering from mental disorder by, by making this decision, this decision because he said that the, the properties that directly come under the supreme leader um, are very small um, obviously you know whether whether we can verify that or not is a different question um, but i think in terms of tangible impact on the economy and if you're looking at a city like esfahan um, a big metropolis outside of tehran that's quite middle class it's a huge tourist attraction probably of all the cities ancient cities in iran esfahan attracts the most tourism dollars than any other city in the world I don't think that that would have a tangible impact there. I think it's the sanctions on Iran's big industries, the ones that draw in the most foreign exchange revenues for the country, um, that, that are going to have the biggest biggest effect there. So, Golnar, can you give us a sense of the pressure that is building within Iran to get a deal done with the United States? 
Um, I don't think that um, the leadership and the government here sense any pressure to have negotiations with the United States because they're just not convinced by the motivations or the motives of the United States. And again, Rouhani was very clear about this in his speech. Again, that he used very strong terms. He said that the decision to sanction the foreign minister, Jabal Zarif, was... Um, proof actually um, qualified the idea that um, the Trump administration has been lying about wanting negotiations with Iran, because if you sanction the foreign minister, then you are pretty much sanctioning the idea of having negotiations of talk, uh, negotiations or talks. So I don't think the Iranian leadership here has ever taken the idea of negotiations um, seriously. They've, I think they've always felt that they were used for possibly kind of um, propaganda purposes to improve the optics of the actual objectives of the Trump administration. And, and I also think that they feel there's a lack of co- cohesion in the policy. So Trump says one thing one day and then um, the State Department under Pompeo or um, John Bolton, the national security advisor of the, of the president, they they say something um, different. The tone, the tone, the tone of, of, of their rhetoric is, is very very different. We've seen that in the past week as well in the aftermath oh. of the shooting down of the drone. Um, yeah. Okay, Golnar, let's leave it there. Golnar Montavalli, thank you so much from Tehran uh, this morning, reporting for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.